How is this sound? Good. Okay. Great. Maybe it was 2008 and uh, I was uh, attending as a student a day long in the community hall, uh, the old trailers here. There was a day long taught by um, Spring Washam and Marv Belzer and the title of the day was something like free your heart, yeah? But it might as well have been something like, we're going to make you cry. (laughs) And the day is like building, you know, it's like a lot of love, a lot of love. And it's building, and it's building, and it's building, and it's like... You're just humming with it, yeah. And then at some point they said, all right, we're going to do an exercise. And uh, it's like, it's the tunnel of kindness. And there's about a hundred of us there. We lined up 50 there, 50 here, facing each other, separated by five feet or so. And one by one, uh, from the top of the tunnel, a person would peel off with their eyes blindfolded and um, walk down the tunnel. And each person would reach out and touch them on the shoulder, this is very (laughs) pre-COVID, touch them on the shoulder and whisper in their ear some loving wish, yeah? And, um, And sometimes people would, you know, you couldn't hear, but I know from, sometimes the wishes were very general, but sometimes they were like targeted right at that person in like a beautiful way. And um, I remember, I, I, w- I wasn't teaching. I think I'd asked a question or something, but people didn't know me. But I was walking down and some people were saying, like, may you be happy, yeah? And it's like, oh, that feels good. And then some people were like, there's a party inside you that wants to come out. <laughs> I guess, pretty perceptive. (laughs) One of the people sitting right in front of me, I could tell, you know, she's like really having a experience the whole day. And so I whispered into her ear, like, I think you're falling in love with the Dharma. And she 
squeals with delight, you know. It's this for like an hour, you know, just... And we, we sort of hit this like total frenzied pitch of, of love and energy and very beautiful, very beautiful, you know. And, and it was paired with a sense, a kind of realization of uh, this isn't sustainable. Yeah. As beautiful a mind state as it was, this isn't sustainable. And there's really only one thing that doesn't fatigue the heart. Peace. That doesn't mean that peace is the only thing we should pursue. And it doesn't mean that when we do pursue peace, we pursue it directly. Sometimes we pursue it obliquely. Sometimes we pursue peace by marching into the belly of the beast. But there is something in us that longs to be, for the heart-mind to be utterly unstimulated. And it's almost like, um, yeah, sometimes we can feel this movement of the heart towards peace as if the nervous system, like something in us, is longing for the Dhamma. We long for a lot of things, but we, we, among them is peace. Twery uh, described the energizing factors last night. Uh, alert, bright, vitalized, deeply willing, deeply willing, yeah willing to engage, willing to come into relationship with whatever is happening in us. And this evening I'm talking about the, the tranquilizing side. Tranquility, samadhi, and equanimity. Sayadaw Tejaniya said something that struck me, um, uh, said that um, energy, mindfulness, and um, investigation, those are the causes, and the effects are rapture, tranquility, samadhi, equanimity, In a way, I see um, tranquility, samadhi, equanimity as the, the effects of a certain kind of letting go. And letting go isn't something um, that we do. It's more like surrender, 
And the tranquilizing side is not just about quieting down or, or chilling out. Um, there's so much bound in, up in it, um, meaning and time and self, the sense of the congealed self. All of that is bound up in agitation, in non-tranquility. So to calm down is a lot more than just calming down. The very sense of temporal density, temporal density, the sense of like the thickness, the denseness, the heaviness of time. Yeah, in dukkha, in our, you know, the, the whirlpools of suffering, time gets very thick, very dense, very linear. But the perception of that, that perception of that temporal density is a function of non-tranquility, of agitation, subtle and gross. This is um, Fernando Pessoa from a, a collection titled A Little Larger Than the Entire Universe. Beyond the bend in the road, there may be a well and there may be a castle and there may be just more road. I don't know and don't ask. As long as I'm on the road that's before the bend, I look only at the road before the bend because the road before the bend is all I can see. It would do me no good to look anywhere else or at what I can't see. Let's pay attention only to where we are. There's only enough beauty in being here and not somewhere else. If there are people beyond the bend of the road, let them worry about what's beyond the bend in the road. That, for them, is the road. If we're to arrive there, when we arrive there, we'll know. For now, we know only that we're not there. Here, there's just the road before the bend. And before the bend, there's the road without any bend. Now, I love that. But that is not how we roll. not even close, yeah? And there are reasons. So I want to uh, illuminate tranquility, this side, this tranquilizing side, um, by giving a sense of why agitation has so much inertia with the hope that if we can understand it more deeply, we might untangle it. 
and be released from this um, temporal density. So it's said that um, all biology is evolutionary biology, and um, you know that we we don't just come from animals; we we are animals. Um, and that's important to remember because if we forget we're animals, um, we wind up hating parts of ourselves. And it's it's um, it's instructive that uh, one of the the honorific nicknames for the Buddha was um, the unexcelled trainer of the animal within the human. Yeah. And as animals, we, uh, we live in a state of vulnerability, of uh, incredible porousness, as Dawn said. The, the world is always touching us. And um, of course, in this time, we see that uh, a strand of proteins can alter the globe fundamentally. Yeah. That's a Nietzsche. That's vulnerable. And the priority in an animal's life, in, a, in any moment, in a sense, the priority has got to be on ensuring more moments, on protection, on safety. And safety is about the future. Safety is always about the future, which means safety is always about prediction. Yeah, about prediction. And so it's said that our, our brain is a prediction machine. Yeah, it is compulsively making and testing hypotheses about what may happen uh, what's going to happen next? Even understanding what's happening right now, we often l- ping to the future to know what's happening now. Yeah. So, like as an example, I, l- last night sitting, I had some weird energetic kind of pain in my leg, but it felt exactly like I was being bit by a wasp or something, yeah? And so I'm there sensing this, like, what is that, yeah? I'm not sure, I I test out a hypothesis. Oh, fairly harmless, yeah? And then I'm waiting to see feedback on the next moment, yeah? Oh, if I breathe into it, the pain is alleviated. Okay, that's a sign. Maybe it's just something energetic, yeah? But this way that we keep assessing, keep assessing, or keeping tabs on the level of security, on where the trajectory of our life is headed, that runs so deep in us. 
Is this retreat going the right way? Is my life going this right way? And in a way, we're, we're looking to never be startled. Yeah. To always nail our predictions. And what are our guesses? How do we guess about what may happen next? What is happening now? Our guesses, of course, are based on the past, on karma. And so we use our history to predict our future. And this ties us very deeply to what was, what might be. And the, in this kind of framework, the, the present moment, you know, like the present moment is, um, is just like the canary in the coal mine of the future. Does that make sense? That's a weird analogy or metaphor, simile or something. I don't know. But the sense of, yeah, the canary in the coal mine of the future, yeah? Is this okay? Yeah? And so the sense of like, the present moment is never an end in itself, but always a means to something else, a means to ensuring more moments. And so the Buddha uh, described the craving to become bhava-tanha, bhava-tanha the craving to become. And this feels like part of what he was alluding to, that kind of energy of subtly leaning into the next moment, even if that's just the next half of the out-breath. Tying our heart in this way to past and future has profound consequences for perception and feeling and thinking, for a sense of self, for the sense of time, for the sense of confinement. And so we're sitting and we're just compulsively making meaning, yeah? Everything means something. What is this? What is that? What does this mean for me? Is this okay? Is it not? William James said, thinking is for doing. Yeah, thinking is tied to action about potentials, yeah? And so many of our thoughts in one way or another are about securing our future, yeah? 
there's an innocence to them. Yeah? They're an expression of our own concern to shore up a sense of security. And we see this just in our retreat life, yeah? Like the way we plan to get lunch or something with the same intensity as like NASA (laughs) planning the landing of the Mars rover on Mars. It's like, all right, shoes, double back, hand sanitizer, nail that. I think I got the path down the, the far side. It's like, you know, our minds. So this um, thinking for doing, we're compulsively staying oriented to self, to time, you know, just the, the very sense of like where I end and the world begins. We're like imaging this in a compulsive way. These are the boundaries of me. This is what's on the other side of me. And so we keep like pinging to the tower of self. We, we stay oriented. That just happened, this is happening, this may happen, I want this. We keep pinging to the tower of our own desires and preferences. And so the present feels very much like it's sandwiched between past and future. confined there. But um, how long is now? And we can start to appreciate um, the, the bottomlessness of the present moment the sense of time, the sense of self is a function of fixation and agitation, a function of clinging, a function of staying compulsively oriented, of making meaning, of defining boundaries, But the present moment, we can know a present that is, um, that, that doesn't feel like it's between anything. That doesn't feel sandwiched between past and future. The temporal density starts to thin out. And so 
the drama, you know, the drama of all this becoming, it, it so fatigues the heart. And we live in a state of vigilance. And something in us uh, longs to be free. The, the tranquilizing factors are about setting us free from this becoming, this flood of becoming, from this vigilance. We're moving, um, moving away from control, from fear, from boundaries. We're not patrolling anything anymore. We're not, we're not patrolling experience. But in order to put down vigilance, there needs to be a lot of trust. Yeah. And that is why we take the precepts. Yeah. It is not a mere ritual to vow not to harm each other. It is not mere ritual to uh, commit our heart to this like ethos of gentleness, of care, of sensitivity. We, we need to know that we have each other's backs. This is why we emphasize a sense of, uh, sense of belonging, yeah? that there's no part of you that needs to be left out. And as I said, that, that to, to not um, assimilate to the Dhamma, but find your own belonging in it. This is why we're on land away from busyness and commerce, seclusion, and this is why we do all we can to make our inner life more and more safe. Yeah? We sit for enough time and there's a sense of seeing all the um, Mara's maneuvers. Yeah? The, the, the kind of cards Mara, this force of suffering, the cards Mara plays. And there's a sense of, um, yeah, over time, the sharp edges of our inner life of memory and habit, this is softened, softened. And so it doesn't feel like we can be ambushed by our own pain anymore. It doesn't feel like we could discover something about ourselves that would be a cause for harshness. No matter what we discover, no matter what we discover, we know it will never be a reason 
or self-hatred. We know that, we feel that. And so, maybe, maybe it's okay to begin releasing some of the vigilance. Maybe it's okay. Maybe it feels uh, safe enough that the compulsive prediction, yeah, modeling the next moment in our mind, maybe that can become a bit quieter. And normally we, we kind of overinterpret everything. Everything means way too much. And with this turn of the heart, everything means the same thing. Let go. Let go. This is at the heart of equanimity, a kind of inner balance, um, a sense of the heart not being compelled by its preferences. Not, it's not the absence of preference, it's not compulsively enacting one's preferences. And this is key in starting to thin out time because clinging, clinging makes time dense, yeah? How long will this go on? When will I be okay? What will I get? All of this, all of these notions sandwiching ourselves in time. How long do I have to live? When will I die? We start letting go. And equanimity, uh, it deepens the, the poignancy of our lives, but drains it of some of the melodrama. It doesn't flatten our life. It deepens the poignancy of our lives. It deepens the predicament of the human condition it deepens our ethical intuitions. But the, the melodrama that quiets. And enlightenment itself is described as like the absence of greed, hate, and delusion, right? And f- to my mind, working with greed, hate, delusion, if I could only have one thing to meet those forces of suffering, I think it would be equanimity. And so, uh, to where he spoke about this last night, that, um, that the unrealistic 
promises of pleasure, yeah? The sense of, um, in, a, in a way, we confuse pleasure for Nibbana. We confuse ice cream for the end of suffering. <laughs> yeah. And so we have this kind of hole in the heart and we try to fill that in some way, but, but the pleasure always overpromises. So we develop equanimity with longing. Equanimity with longing, that is tender. Hatred, aversion, kind of chemical fire in the heart. And so we're called um, to develop equanimity with imperfection. So greed is the hole in the heart and aversion is the fire in the heart, but what is delusion? What does delusion feel like? Uh, Delusion feels exactly like the truth. That's kind of messed up. So how do we see what we don't see? To use the visual metaphor, how do we see what we don't see? Equanimity with greed and aversion actually helps treat delusion too in in this way. Um, Delusion launders our greed and our hatred, yeah. Delusion serves to justify and dignify our greed and our hatred, to sanitize it. When I launder money, I take dirty money and make it clean. When delusion launders greed, it makes it exuberance or excitement or something. When delusion launders hatred, it makes it righteousness. And so if we can actually, and we, I mean, we live in these house of cards just built out of just one rationalization after another. A laundering of greed, a laundering of hate. And we it works so quickly that we don't detect it and then we find ourselves actually living in a house built of the defilements. They, it proliferates, and that is, um, can only end one way. And so um, we keep, 
letting go, we keep developing patience and tolerance, equanimity with the forces of greed and aversion so that we don't need to rationalize, justify, launder, dignify, we keep letting go and samadhi is the pleasure of letting go. Samadhi is the pleasure of letting go. Mm, I think um, the Samyutta Nikaya, the Buddha says something like, for one who, who lets go, samadhi arises effortlessly. So we're letting go of time, of orientation, of uh, this kind of interpretation, this meaning-making, this pinging to the tower of preference. Ajahn Sajito, I think of enjoyment as receiving joy and samadhi as the art of refined enjoyment. It is the careful collecting of oneself to the joy of the present. Joyfulness means there is not fear, tension, no ought to. There isn't anything we have to do about it. So there is stillness, it's just this. This is not about engineering something or deepening our control over the moment. This is about trusting awareness, about letting go of seeing that clinging complicates everything. It complicates everything. It makes time feel dense. And so at some point, um, we just get so fatigued of all of samsara's broken promises. You know, like how long have we been baited into really imagining that there's some rest in more pleasure in the absence of aversive objects. It's, it's, we've been just led along for too long. We start to become disenchanted. I cannot make a home in pleasure. I cannot make a home in greed. There is no rest in aversion. And samadhi is, um, can arise, can arise in, in this very healing type of joy, very healing type of joy. And it's healing because the fragmentation, the agitation, um, yeah, this dissolves. 
And it, it's really not about feeling good. Yeah, it's not, a, it's not like another species of pleasure, really. That, that even gets tiring. Even, even can be abrasive, as, as wild as like, you know, that sounds rapturous, ecstatic bliss, you know, gets old. But it's true. And so samadhi, it's healing and it deepens our faith. It deepens our faith. Because for a long time, a long time, maybe decades, there's a part of our mind that thinks maybe this path is also a con. Yeah. Or that somehow we are the exception. The Buddha was talking about other people. And then we hit into some deep settledness and it's like, I can do this. This is not a shell game. It's almost shocking, like, oh, oh, like, even me. Yeah. Even me. The Buddha was talking about me. And so we settle into the enoughness of the moment and there is um, so much less uh, prediction happening. We rejoice in in the wholesomeness of our efforts. We rejoice in the goodness of our conduct, of our sila, our commitment to non-harming, we rejoice in this. We rejoice in the blessings of Dhamma. And samadhi is usually separated from insight, but samadhi, what I can tell, samadhi makes the mind much more impressionable, much more plastic. And the more still we become, the more our understandings leave indelible marks in the heart. It's like the insight has legs. It's sealed in in some way. We're letting go of of, uh, of agitation, of prediction, of orientation, and at some point letting go of intention entirely. Because as uh, Ajahn Brahm says, intention causes the mind to move. And so just like you could never hold a leaf still in the wind because of tremors in your own muscles, you just protect the wind from the leaf. 
and the leaf comes to a natural state of stillness. This is about surrender, not engineering. We don't hate ourselves for our vigilance. We don't hate ourselves for our vigilance. We settle into the protection of Buddha Dhamma Sangha. We settle into the protection of our shared aspirations, of our commitment to gentleness. We renounce time and orientation and preference. We renounce them. And we no longer are compulsively pinging to the tower of self. And so we get still, we get some real rest. We get some real rest. And in that rest, there is healing. There is the pliable, unified mind, the mind that can learn. And there is the release, the release from the density of time. Just sit for a moment. So I, I offer that uh, for your uh, consideration, investigation. Please, um, please pick up whatever seems uh, useful and, and leave all the rest behind. So, uh,
we'll, uh, in a moment we'll have a short period of, of, uh, of movement, of, of walking, of if your mobility is limited, any, any kind of movement where you just keep your heart right there. And um, then have the, the uh, usually the last sit of the night and then completely optional, no gold stars, come on back at 9.45 and we'll uh, sit, walk, sit in the, in the night together. If you have the energy, please. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.